This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Black lives, what about black lives? What about black lives? After a long time out dealing with personal issues, singer-songwriter Dan Hill is back with a new single inspired by the death of George Floyd and the persistence of racism. And... Along with the news of two promising COVID vaccines, there are a host of ethical questions about who should get access first. I'll talk with a bioethicist who is advising the government. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Singer and philanthropist Dolly Parton is getting some of the credit for Moderna's COVID-19 vaccine that Canadians might get next year. The company worked with Nashville's Vanderbilt University Medical Center, which received a $1 million donation from Parton. A footnote in the New England Journal of Medicine report credits the Dolly Parton COVID-19 Research Fund. The Canadian government has ordered 20 million doses, enough to vaccinate 10 million people, with an option for an additional 36 million doses. He never, never ever could imagine what it was like to be so close to the Queen, who was an absolute dream of a person. We really enjoyed ourselves. That was 100-year-old war vet Sir Tom Moore receiving a knighthood from the Queen in July. The centenarian, who raised millions for hospital charities in the UK after walking laps in his garden, keeps having an incredible year. He's become the oldest, and some say the most dapper, model to be featured in British GQ as part of its Men of the Year issue. He appears on the cover wearing a tuxedo draped in a Union Jack. Prime Minister Boris Johnson praised Moore, saying he's provided a beacon of light through the fog of the coronavirus. A numbness in my legs and my limbs, and it turned out I had a tumor on my spine. That's Michael J. Fox on his recent health crisis after doctors removed a benign tumor on his spine. The 59-year-old reveals more about his health in a new book out this week called No Time Like the Future, An Optimist Considers Mortality. The actor and activist from B.C. who was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease nearly three decades ago also revealed this week that he's been forced to end his acting career because he doesn't have the short-term memory skills to learn lines. This is the fourth memoir from Fox who offers hope to others with his eternal optimism. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Saying what about black lives? What about black lives? What about black lives? 
That is the inimitable Dan Hill singing What About Black Lives, the new single from his first album in 11 years. It's been about four years since we talked to the award-winning singer-songwriter as he took time out to deal with personal and mental health issues. It was a pleasure to chat with him again. The song sounds terrific. Congratulations. Oh, thank you so much for taking the time out to listen to it. For me, I always express myself best when I'm either writing a book or an article or writing a song. You know, I'm not as fluid as, say, my brother Lawrence when it comes to extemporaneous speaking. So I felt that the most effective vehicle for me was to write, record, and make a lyric video and ultimately post and release this song. Is there any particular uh, reason to be releasing it in November, or is that just when you're finished? I've signed a really big international uh, distribution deal, you know, out of the States. You know, the, the song the song and the artwork uh, simply wasn't ready until four weeks ago, and the record company needs a four-week lead before they can process everything. Plus the fact that during the U.S., election you know i didn't think i would be getting nor the song be getting any attention in the light of the u.s election and the election of president-elect joe biden what do you think the song's relevance is well the issue of uh of racism you know and systemic discrimination of all races and also all people of uh, lower socioeconomic classes, you know, is is continuing to go on and is a persistent, unfortunately, relevant issue. So I, I felt that this, you know, I wasn't being kind of calculating. To be honest, when I wrote the song, you know, it was a little bit out of my, my typical songwriting because, as you know, most, a lot of my songs are love songs. So I didn't really think that much of it. Then I was bowled over by the response you know i just took it as a personal song and a catharsis for me and suddenly it just seemed to take take on its own momentum and the next thing i knew this u.s this distribution company sort of jumped all over and and insisted that it be the first single as you said your songs are mostly deeply personal so is this a, a new direction or something like that I would say yes and no. You know, one of the things I really enjoyed was making the record without drums. You know, it, it still kind of carries my sort of trademark vocal sound. In my 15-song album, I do make references to COVID, you know, which I, I wrote the song in March, and I figured that by now it would be irrelevant. And sadly for all of this, it's, it's, it's greater than it's ever been. Yeah. I And I do write about a lot of other topics, you know, the feelings of, of kind of nihilism and, and uh, self-destruction and self-loathing, which which tends to pivot me into a chorus that's released with, with light and positivity. So they are songs that deal a lot more with, um, I suppose, personal and emotional issues that uh, so many of us are addressing, at least in, in my age group. How are you keeping with covid well, you know, ironically, for me, COVID was, was obviously, you know, catastrophic. But the interesting thing for me is I could kind of burrow down into the studio without any distractions. All concert performances canceled. 
nobody that I could see, no place that I could go. And so I just simply went into this recording studio every day for four months and just hyper-focused with no distractions. Before all this, you had some challenges with your mental health. How are you doing with that? Oh, thank you for asking. I've definitely gone through some some dark journeys. I've definitely um, had to confront uh, suffering and in various uh, forms of trauma. But uh, luckily, and sometimes it's hard to predict why this happens, because therapy didn't really seem to help me, possibly because I wasn't opening up enough. But it, I think making the album, you know, I, I just so fell in love with music and songwriting and singing that it sort of lifted me, lifted me out of my suffering and darkness. Well, how long were you not writing and singing? Well, you know, I, I was occasionally doing tours in Asia in the odd concert in Canada in writing and recording the odd song. But I would have to say that in many respects, I was shut down for about mm, four years. The other issue was that my mom had tried to commit suicide unsuccessfully four times. And then I had moved in with her, you know, to prop her up. And then she elected to have assisted suicide in Switzerland two and a half years ago. So although she was Wow. Absolutely right to make that decision. She was 90 years of age. She was healthy, working out with a trainer twice a week. And it was a, a very, very uh, devastating loss for me and the rest of my family on the heels of my sister's tragic death, which which so kindly uh, Larry and I discussed with you in Zuma Radio back in 2014 when she died. How has writing this music and dealing with the politics of it brought you back to your roots and Canada? Well, a lot of it is sort of owning up and um, not being afraid of being vulnerable. You know, a lot of it was addressing um, my previous uh, self-loathing and fragility. Um, And somehow writing this album, you know, which I was doing steadily every day and then recording the album had a hugely uh, galvanizing and therapeutic effect on me. Well, that's so good. Thank you. (laughs) I'm thrilled to be back again, to be emerging, you know, back to my old dynamic self. And uh, I'm so encouraged that um, you, Libby, and Zoomer would take the time. And please, please, my love to you and your family. Absolutely. Thanks so much. My pleasure. We'll talk soon. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Bye now. What about black lives? What about black lives? What about black lives? Time we heard the truth. We're tired of being... That was singer-songwriter Dan Hill and his new single, What About Black Lives? The album, On the Other Side of Here, will be released in February 2021. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Weekend Review. Coming up the ethical questions around the rollout of a COVID vaccine. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. This 
This week, there was great news about the promising results of two potential COVID-19 vaccines. The federal government has purchased millions of doses of both the Pfizer and the Moderna versions, which have yet to be approved. In addition to the logistics, which have to be sorted out, there are big ethical questions to answer about who will get vaccinated first. I talked with Dr. Allison Thompson, a University of Toronto bioethicist who is advising the province. We know that older people or elderly people are most vulnerable, and we also know that the preponderance, 80% of the deaths in the first wave were in long-term care. So does it follow that those people will get the vaccine first? It would make sense if the vaccine is effective in older people. The problem is that a lot of the time, the vaccines we have for respiratory illnesses are less effective for older people. And that's for the same reason that they're more vulnerable, that their immune systems are not going to mount a strong response to the vaccine as a younger person. So some strategies would have uh, older, older people maybe vaccinated, but it would be more important to vaccinate those who are caring for them or visiting them in long-term care. So you're creating a sort of barrier of protection around them as well. What are the other considerations? Who else would be in line? Well, even that that issue about prioritizing the elderly is controversial. There are some bioethicists, one in particular in the U.S., who's very influential, who is making the argument that it should go to younger people first based on the idea that older people have had a chance to live a good life and that perhaps we should be prioritizing people who could most benefit uh, in terms of longevity from a vaccine. His name is Zeke Emanuel. Yeah, I thought it was him. Yeah. <laughs> he's Okay, he he's the guy who says we should all voluntarily off ourselves at the age of at 75. Uh, 75, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's he's um an interesting character. He's he had this argument during pandemic influenza planning too that that this sort of fair innings argument if you've had a fair innings at life you should be lower on the prioritization list. So that's um he's very influential um but it is not the the mainstream view I think. But I think that Joe Biden just named him to some very high level advisory group. Yep, and he has filled that role. He's often on the presidential bioethics committees. He's clearly got uh, his own views there, but generally speaking, bioethicists like to, you know, offer more more balanced opinions. Then there are questions around what what do we owe healthcare providers? You know, they have continued to put themselves on the front line at some risk to themselves. Ought we to prioritize them as well at the same time so we can maintain the healthcare system so that it's functioning well and because we owe them something because they are taking risks? Aren't they also potentially spreading it if they get sick? I mean, doesn't it make sense for protecting everyone? Most healthcare providers now do have access to good personal protective equipment. So some people are arguing that they ought not to be prioritized because they are well protected because they're wearing masks and, and taking the appropriate precautions. But again, that's a controversial point of view. There's a huge preponderance of disease in lower income neighborhoods and also among racialized groups. And that's also true in the United States. So what about the argument that they should be getting the vaccine first or a vaccine first? 
Right. So this is a great example of where the science needs to also take into consideration the ethics because, yes, they are disproportionately burdened with COVID-related illness and, and deaths, but they are also groups that have very low trust in the health system to begin with. And so when we prioritize groups that are marginalized in that way for vaccines, we often see that they are uh, reluctant because they are are perceiving that as being used as guinea pigs. And in this case, where we do have such a short timeline for the development of the vaccine and limited long-term safety and effectiveness data, that's not an unreasonable perception. Who decides here also since you have competing jurisdictions? Right. So the, the federal body called Massey, the National Advisory Council on Immunizations, will make some recommendations, which I think they have, but there is no obligation to follow those. And so the province will come out with their own prioritization framework, and then you see that places like Toronto Public Health have their own framework. Your table will make recommendations to the province, which yeah. the province may or may not follow. And in turn, the local public health units may or may not follow the province's recommendations. That's my understanding, yeah. And it is very muddy, and it's not, it's been months before any of this has become clear. So (laughs) it is a very confusing situation. Presumably, some of these vaccines will be approved very soon. Are we ready to distribute them and inoculate the population? I think that we are are ramping up, you know, the federal government has said that we have the syringes we need and the vials we need, all those kinds of extra extra things that we need to make an immunization program run smoothly. I think where we're really behind is on the communication side. We have not been engaging with these vulnerable groups who may be prioritized to see how they're going to receive that information. And we haven't really talked about, you know, what what a fair distribution strategy would be. And, you know, surely the public should be part of that conversation. Dr. Allison Thompson, thank you so much. And I hope we talk again soon. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Dr. Allison Thompson of the Leslie Dan School of Pharmacy at the University of Toronto. That brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Huddy, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.